Hello and welcome to the podcast of Chesbro Baptist Church. This morning's message is about our enemy. We all have an enemy that we face, and it's the same enemy. And it's an enemy that Jesus faced in Matthew chapter number four. And from his encounter with our enemy, we know how we can fight him. Of course, our enemy is old smutty face himself, the devil. So the title of today's message is Know Your Enemy. Please enjoy. Matthew chapter number four this morning. Once you get there, I'm going to ask you to stand in respect and reverence to the word of God as we read the scripture. If you're physically able, Matthew chapter number four. We're going to begin reading in verse number one. Then Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him upon a pinnacle of the temple. And he saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee. And their hands... Uh, they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. And saith unto them, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. The devil leaveth, then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. The title of the message this morning is Know Your Enemy. Know Your Enemy. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, thank you once again for all you've done for us. Dear Lord, I pray that you would uh, bless this service this morning. I pray that you'd bless us from the Word of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. In, uh, in 2007, uh, the New England Patriots were accused of something. They were accused of, surprise, surprise, they were accused of cheating. Now, the New England Patriots cheating? Surely not. Surely you're kidding. But they were accused of cheating. And how they were accused of is what they were accused of is secretly taping their opponent's workouts. And uh, this affectionately been, was known as Spygate. This was the Spygate controversy. And uh, they were secretly taping their opponents' workouts and, and, and strategies and plays and whatnot. And there, there were hidden cameras, and it was very 007-like. And uh, it, it all came out, and it went all the way to Congress, where members of the New England Patriots had to testify before Congress over this, over this whole thing. So, you know, you... You can say many things about Coach Bill Belichick if you want to, but there's one thing uh, that, that you, you can't say about him is that, uh, that he doesn't know the value of, of knowing his enemy. 
And that's basically what he is trying to do is, is, is he knows the importance of scouting the enemy. And when it comes to fighting in a battle, knowing your enemy and scouting your enemy is a very important thing. And, and here in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew 4 gives us an inside look at our enemy's battle strategy. And there are no hidden cameras and there's no spy video. And the Lord Jesus Christ goes into this and, and he, give us an, he gives us an inside look at our enemy's plan of attack. Okay? And uh, it gives us, he also not only gives us our enemy's plan of attack, but the Lord gives us a 100% guaranteed method of combating this battle strategy here. He gives us a 100% guaranteed method that when used properly works every single time. Um, the public ministry of Jesus just began here in Matthew 4.1. This is the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. Before this, uh, Jesus had submitted to the waters of baptism. And as Jesus was, was submitting to the waters of baptism... God the Father, God Jehovah, his booming voice came out of heaven and he looked and he, the, you could hear the voice of God from heaven said, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So this was kind of a victory and this was, Jesus was kind of on cloud nine at this point, but that was about to change. The scenery was about to change because Jesus was going to trade the cool, smooth waters of baptism for the harsh, rugged terrain of the Judean wilderness. Now, the Judean wilderness was, was, in, was inhabited by many things, including boars, jackals, wolves, foxes, leopards, and hyenas. Oh, and also don't forget lions. Lions in the wilderness of Judea. But I'm going to tell you today, the, the, in the enemy that Jesus had to look out for wasn't the king of beasts. The enemy that, the, that Jesus had to look out for was the prince and power of the air because he was after the Lord. And as Satan prepares and fortifies his demons to attack and gets them ready and they get ready to attack the morning star, at this point I want you to know that Jesus was mentally drained and Jesus was, was uh, physically drained. Because, you know, he'd been fasting for 40 days and this would put anybody in a weakened mental and physical state. And the question here is, <coughs> what is Jesus, I mean, what is Satan trying to accomplish here? What is Satan trying to get done? What's he trying to do? Well, you know what? The evil serpent, he knows, he thinks to himself, man, if I can get Jesus to sin, if I can get the creator of the universe to sin, then I can win the battle. If I can get him to sin, then, then, man, I would have won the battle of all ages, and that's what Satan was trying to do. Satan was trying to get Jesus to sin because he knew that if Jesus sinned, that he would win the battle. But see, here's the magnificent thing about it. Jesus was absolutely 100% incapable of sinning he was incapable of sinning the bible says in first john 3 5 and know ye that he was manifested to take away our sins 
and in him is no sin. John 8, 46, which of you convinceth me of sin? And, uh, and if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? Luke 23, 4, then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. Luke 23, 47, now when the centurion saw that was done, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. So Jesus is incapable of sinning. Jesus can't sin. So it bears the question, why did Jesus go into the wilderness in the first place? Why did Jesus allow himself to go into the wilderness if he couldn't sin, if he was incapable of sinning? Why did he submit to this? I'll tell you why Jesus went into the wilderness. He went into the wilderness because he knew one day in a city called Kentwood, Louisiana, and a little backwater community called Chespro, there's going to be a church called Chespro Baptist Church, and that day that pastor's going to stand up and he's going to open the Bible and he's going to turn to Matthew chapter 4 and he's going to read this story to me and you and we're going to see how Jesus fought the devil that's why he went into the wilderness he went into the wilderness so me and you can know the devil's plan of attack he went into the wilderness so me and you can see how the devil does and see what his battle plan is and see what his strategy is and see how Jesus overcomes him he did that in this Matthew chapter 4 for me and you this morning he did it for us so we can see and so we can know he went into the wilderness because he loves me and he loves you. And he wanted us to see what we were up against. And he wanted us to see what we were fighting. He wanted to equip us with the enemy's battle strategy. Here in Matthew chapter 4, the, 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 the Lord gives us an 11 verse battle plan for victory. We're going to go through these 11 verses. Point number one this morning is the enemy described. The enemy described. What exactly, who exactly is our enemy? What are we dealing with here? Well, we see in verse number one that he is called the devil. He is called the devil. The word devil describes Satan as a slanderer, a false accuser. He is an aggressor. The devil is always on the offense. He's always attacking. He's always looking for weakness. The devil goes to and the devil goes fro. And he does this to accuse me and you. He looks for our weaknesses. He's always poking. He's always prodding. He goes to a dam and he looks for the weakest spot and that's what he pokes. He is the devil. He is a slander, a false accuser, an aggressor. Verse number three, he is called the tempter. And when the tempter came to him, he is called a tempter. Why is the devil called the tempter? He is a tempter because all he does is raise question and all he does is raise doubt. The devil takes the absolute truths of the Bible and he puts a question mark behind him. He takes the absolute truths laid out in the word of God and he puts a little question mark back there. In fact, if you think about it, uh, the first time the devil speaks in the Old Testament, he says, yea, hath God said. And then the first time he speaks in the New Testament, he says, if thou be. It's all question marks. 
It's all a question. Hey, and that's what he does. He questions us today. He questions. I want you to see that his number one business is to contradict the word of God. The number one business is to contradict the word of God this morning. That's what he does. I want you to see also in verse three, it exposes him as a liar. Let's look at verse number three. And when the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread this morning. You know, this, this statement here, if thou be the son of God, if thou be the son of God, this is a direct, uh, uh, th- this is a, a direct contradiction of the declaration of the almighty God. Of course he's the son of God. Because what happened in Matthew 3, 7 is the heaven opened up and the voice of God came down and the voice of God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The devil can take a direct audible quote from God, Jehovah himself and contradict it. There's no question here. That's already, hey, hey, the Lord God said it from heaven. That's it. It's signed. It's over. It's delivered. It is fact. Case closed. End of discussion. Once the father declares it, it's over. Yet that's not enough for Satan. Satan finds a way to question a direct audible declaration from the almighty God. No wonder Jesus said in John 8, 44, when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. I want you to see that verse six shows us that he's crafty. Says in verse six, it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee. You know what he's doing here? He's quoting Psalms 91, 11. Let me tell you something about the devil. The devil knows the Bible better than you ever will. The devil knows the, better, the Bible better than me and you will ever know it. He knows it backwards and he knows it forwards. But I want you to see here, he quotes 90, Psalm 91.11, but he doesn't quote the whole verse. In fact, he leaves a few words out. And that's where he gets you. That's where it gets you. You know what Psalms 91 11, it says, for he shall give his angels, this is Psalms 91 11, for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And here are the four words that he leaves out in all thy ways. Those four words change the entire meaning of the verse. And those are the four words he leaves out. You see, God's angels protect those who are living in obedience to the word of God, not the individual who follows the whims of the devil. Okay, so those four words he takes out and it changes. The devil doesn't have anything original. The devil takes what's already here and perverts it. The devil takes the Bible and he perverts it by twisting and taking things out of context. Television is a, can be a wonderful tool, but what does the devil do? The devil perverts it and twists it and turns it up. Uh, marriage is a gift of God, but guess what the devil does? The devil perverts it. The devil takes what God has made and he perverts it. That's what he does. He twists it. He doesn't make anything on his own. He takes what the, what the God has and he perverts it and changes it. Why? Because he's crafty. Because he's smart. 
I want you to see verse 8 shows us that he is arrogant. He's arrogant. Let's read verse number 8. And again, the devil taking them up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Oh, the arrogance. Oh, the pretension to bring Christ up high on a, on a mountain and to shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory and all. He says, all these things I will give you. Please. Come on. Jesus made that mountain. Jesus made that mountain you're standing on. Glory? Let me tell you something. My Bible says Jesus is going to come back in his glory. He's got plenty of glory, devil. He doesn't need any of your glory. Kingdoms? You're going to give him kingdoms? My Bible says in Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. But that's our enemy. That's what we have to deal with. He is a devil. He is a tempter. He is a liar. He is crafty and he is arrogant and he knows what he's doing. He's good at it. He's a professional. I want you to see number two this morning. We have the enemy debunked. We have the enemy debunked. As this Battle is engaged. The Savior exposes the devil's strategy. It's a three-pronged attack. And it's outlined in 1 John 2.16. And here it is. 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. That is the devil's three-pronged attack. That's his battle strategy. Those are the weapons he uses each and every time. In some way, shape, form, or fashion, he uses these, these three weapons, these three tools to attack me and you. So let's take a closer look at this threefold attack. First, we have the lust of the flesh. That's the first one. He begins to ask the Savior to turn some stones into bread. Now, I want to say, first of all, surely the Creator could do this. Surely the creator could make stones edible. Surely he could. And, you know, he wanted, wanted, Jesus wanted him to turn this into some fruity pebbles, you know. Eat it down. I have been eating fruity pebbles at the house. I love them. But, uh, you know, but the thing is, is, is Jesus, Jesus was human. Jesus is just like me and you. You go three days without eating, and you'll know how Jesus felt after three days of not eating. And if you go 40 days without eating, that's exactly how Jesus felt after going 40 days without eating. Hey, you know what? It is the, he felt the same way that me and you feel. Why? Because he was human. But you see, what this came down to is it came down to a choice between being led of the Spirit and a choice of succumbing to Satan. You know what the devil does? I always said he corrupts everything, but... Uh, what he likes to do is he takes the physical desires that the Lord has installed in his creations and he corrupts them. He corrupts them. The physical relationship between a husband and a wife is God's wedding gift to you. But 
what the devil does and what the world does, and Hollywood is bad about this, is perverts it. They take it and they pervert it and they ruin it because that's what he does. He takes, and, and the question we have to ask ourselves, and, and, and this, is what's, this is what's at the root of the lust of the flesh, is are we a people that are run by our appetites? You know? And, and that's at the, at the core of the lust of the flesh. Are we people who are run by our appetites? Do we let our body tell us instead of us telling our body? Now, look, I'm not going to stand up here and for a second pretend that I'm not guilty. I'm overweight. It, I don't know if you knew it. I'm going to break it to you, okay? Let it in easy. Let it sink in. I know it's a shock, okay? But, you know, when it comes down to it, you can't get away from the Bible. Some, you know, a lot, one of the tools that the devil has against us is letting us be ruled by our appetites, Another thing, the next thing, next tool we have here is the pride of life. Pride of life is the next tool that the devil uses. The wicked one, he brought the Savior to a pinnacle above the temple. It was a part of the temple that was way up high, 150 feet above the temple. So from the top of the pinnacle to the bottom of the Kidron Valley was 700 feet. So the devil brought Jesus 700 feet above and looked down at all the people. And basically he looked at, the, at, at Jesus and said this. He said, you know what? Man, things aren't going too well for you. You know, um, your own family members are rejecting you. The religious leaders of the day don't respect you. And the only converts you have are lowly fishermen. You know what? <laughs> Maybe you should just cast yourself off the top of this temple. Then you'd be the talk of the town. Then, then you would get the respect that you needed. Then people would look up to you. Then people would see you. The pride of life is a cancer that has claimed the lives of many Christians, marriages, homes, and churches. Have you ever heard, have you ever said or heard someone say these words? We deserve better. No one understands me. I haven't done anything wrong. No one respects me. Everybody is out to get me. Sometimes we feel like this and instead of running to our prayer closet, we run to Dr. Phil. And Dr. Phil's going to take care of us. And, uh, you know, we, we go to psychiatrists and we get prescription pills. And, we, you know, we become a nation of legal drug addicts. And, and instead of saying Jesus is all I need, we say a pill is all I need. Now, let me stop. Let me stop and say this. I am not telling you that prescription drugs do not have their place. No, I'm not going to say that at all because they certainly do. I have seen children that need Ritalin. They can't function without it. Prescription drugs have, has their place. Now, are they being abused? A thousand times, yes. Not every kid needs Ritalin, you know. 
Not every person needs antidepressants. They have their place. But this society of let's just write a script, write a script and write a skip script and throw these pills out just to solve our problems and make them go away. You're not going to solve the problem. You're going to cover up the problem. You have to dive, dive inside to get the problem. But they'd rather take a pill because they don't want to search their heart and find out the truth. We become a pill is all I need instead of Jesus is all I need. Many marriages have been destroyed by the pride of life. When a lost man is angry at his wife, there's a lot of cussing. There's a lot of screaming. There's a lot of slamming of the doors. And he goes out in his truck and he gets in his truck and he cranks it up and he revs it out and he peels out and he goes down to the local bar. Get him a brewski. That's how a lost, that's how lost people do it. Christians do something a little different. Christians have a fight. There's no screaming. <laughs> There's no cussing, hopefully. There's no squealing out going down to the bar. <laughs> what happens is she goes and watches her TV, and he goes and watches his TV, and stubborn pride keeps them from working things out. And that's what happens to Christians as stubborn pride keeps, thing, keeps people from getting things right. And when you don't get something right, it builds and it festers. If you don't treat a wound, the wound will get infected and it will grow and it will destroy whatever it's attached to. You can't let pride keep you from working things out. You have to talk about it. You have to work things out. You know... How many churches across America have business meetings where that feature infantile Christians? A lot like the Christians that were in 1 Corinthians 1 and 3. What you have here is you have people in the church or in 1 Corinthians who are claiming to be super spiritual and they say things like, oh, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos and I am of Cephas and we're having, having some high and toity uh, people saying, oh, I, have an, I am of Christ. But you see, Paul wasn't fooled by any of that. Paul looked at those and said, you're a bunch of carnal babies. That's what he called them. You're a bunch of carnal babies. You know, we have people in our churches today that have the atrophies disease. You know what the atrophies disease is? The atrophies was a man in 1 John 3.10. The atrophies was identified as a church member, listen to this, who loveth to have the preeminence among them. Did you hear that? He loveth to have the preeminence among them. That's a sad testimony. He didn't have a testimony of, oh, he loves to give to missions. He didn't have a testimony, oh, he loves to support his pastor. He didn't have a testimony, he loves to give sinners the gospel. No, he had the testimony of, I always have to be first. The pride of life. That's one of the tools of the devil. What's the third tool this morning? The third tool this morning is the lust of the eyes. From an exceeding high mountain, he makes his pitch. Knowing that Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, he tells them, you know what, Christ? You know what, Jesus? I can give you the kingdoms of the world without the death of Calvary. 
I can give them to you now. You don't have to go to Calvary. You don't have to go through that. I'll give them to you now. I can give you the kingdoms without the cross. I can give you the victory without the suffering. No Isaiah 53 for you. And that's what he's tempting Christ with right here. Many a child of the king has failed to the treasures of the kingdoms of this world. Because its allure is powerful. You mean I don't have to die daily? You mean I don't have to pick up my cross and follow him? Because, man, the treasures of this world, man, the, this world is rich. And if you, sometimes if you give in to the treasures of this world, oh, you'll have all your needs taken care of. You'll have all your bills paid and you'll be able to buy all the pretty toys and you'll be able to do this and that and the other because the world is rich and the world is powerful and the world wants to tempt you away from God and the world wants to offer you everything on a silver platter. Just here, here it is. And it's a lure, it's powerful. In the 1930s, America was in the throes of the Great Depression. There was a young insurance clerk he was 24 years old. He had a deep, melodious voice. This radio station came to this young man and put a contract right in front of him. If this young man would sign this contract, he would get a, a, a contract that would make him a singing star. You might even call him the American Idol of the day. So he's wrestling with it because he always wanted to you know, use his talents for God, but then you have this contract here, it's offering him this, I mean, this is, we're in the depression. This is hard times. And this, this contract would set him up for life. So he was thinking about it and he went home to Canada. He went home to Canada to visit home and he was still thinking about this offer that was being made to him and he sat down at his mom's piano and at his mom's piano, she had quietly placed there the words of a poem. As he began to read the words of this poem, his fingers started to go over the piano keys, and before you know it, a melody was created. But more importantly than that, a choice had been made. The name of that man was a young man named George Beverly Shea. And the words that seized his heart went like this. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his and have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. The world is rich. The world is powerful and the world can give you houses and the world can give you lands and the world can give you gold and silver, but I'd rather have Jesus. Amen. Let's look at number three this morning. Next, we have the enemy defeated. The enemy defeated. You know what the crucial takeaway from Matthew chapter four is? The crucial takeaway from Matthew chapter four, let me tell you something, Christian, the devil can be defeated. He is powerful. He is the most powerful creature that's ever been created. But the devil can be defeated. And the Bible is incredibly important when it comes to getting victory over the devil. 
Psalms 119.11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Let me tell you something, Christian. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're given many things to help us in, in this fight. In Ephesians 6, we're given the helmet of salvation. We're told to wrap ourselves in righteousness and truth. We're told to prepare our feet for the proclamation of the gospel. We're told to lift up the shield of unshakable faith. And these are all good things. But you, there's a common thread amongst all those things. They're all for defense. They're all for defensive purposes only. We've only been given one weapon of offense. And you know what that is? That is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I have a friend. I, we were friends when we were kids. And uh, he went over to Iraq. And he was in the Iraqi war. And he was, came, came back on leave one time. And uh, his dad looked at him and said, Ben, um, what was the one? His dad's an evangelist. And his dad said, Ben, what is the one thing that impressed, one lesson you learned over there that impressed you the most? And this is what Ben told his dad. He said, Dad, the one thing that, that impressed me the most was, was this, is that you never know when the enemy is around. Always keep your weapon close. Always keep your weapon close because you never know when the enemy is around. Christian, Keep your weapon close. Keep your sword close to you because you never know when the next battle is going to happen. Keep your weapon close to you because you never know when the next temptation is going to strike. Jesus uses this weapon against the, against the, the battle in the battle to claim victory over the devil. He uses the weapon of the sword of the spirit of the word of God. And Matthew 4, 4 and 7, he uses the phrase, it is written. Three word phrase. In the Greek, that three-word phrase is one word, and that word is gegraphitai. Gegraphitai is one word, and it means it is written. You see, the ancient Greeks, what they would do is they would, they would take their, 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 what they were going to write, and they would chisel this out in, in, in stone tablets, and they would take these stone tablets and, and wrap them together and tie them together. So literally, the words were written in stone. I want you to see today that, that Jesus believed in what he was saying. He didn't say it was written. He said it is written. Modern scholars will tell us that the only perfect Bible is the original text. Let me tell you something. Jesus didn't have the original text when he said these words to the devil. He didn't say it was written. He said it is written. Jesus didn't buy into that. He didn't buy into this idea that the only perfect word of God is the original text. No, I have the perfect Word of God. I have the perfect Bible. The Bible is preserved for me. What power that gives me and you. What power that gives us as a Christian to know uh, the phrase it is written is a statement of indisputable legal authority of the Bible. And to the power of knowing that the Bible that stood in the day of Jesus Christ is the Bible that still stands today. It is written. 
Assault number one was handled by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. Assault number two was handled by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. Assault number three was handled by, by quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. These three attacks were de defeated because Jesus had hid the word of God in his heart. The key to defeating the, the devil is this Bible right here. Now, Matthew 4 only records three attacks. But in Luke 4, 2, the Bible says that Jesus went through 40 days of attacks. And I can guarantee you each and every time that Satan would lob that fastball, uh, Jesus' way, he would take the word of God and knock it out of the park. Every single attack was shut down by the Bible. When it comes to defeating Satan, plan A is go to the Bible. Plan B is there is no plan B. Go back to plan A and use the Bible. The Bible, this is our defense against, the word, against Satan, is the word of God. I have three things really quickly that you must do with your weapon. That you must do it. And I don't care if you've been a, a Christian for 50 years. We all need to hear this. Number one, the first thing you do with your weapon is read your weapon. Read your weapon. We need to set a time, set aside a time every day to read our weapon. Oh, Brother Brad, I don't have time for that. Boo hockey, I say. In this day and time, we have better access to the Word of God than we ever have today. I have an app on my phone, my Bible app. It, it not only reads me the Word of God, but it, it dramatizes it. It's like I'm listening to old-timey radio. Drive, you have a long commute, download an app, get a free CD, listen to the Word of God. There's no excuse we have for not reading the Word of God. So not only should you read the Word of God, number two, Christian, hey, you should study the Word of God. You should set a time to study the Word of God. And instead of reading chapters, break it down verse by verse. Slow it down a little bit. If you've got footnotes in your Bible, stop, read those. Look up those verses. Hey, you know what? The best way to understand a verse in the Bible is to ask simple questions when you read it. Here's an example of some of the questions to ask. Ask who it's written to. Ask who is the author God is giving the words to. What are the issues of the day the recipient is dealing with? And what other scriptures has to do with this subject? Can expound on this text we must become students of the Word of God. Reading is good and we need to read it, but bless God, we got to study it too. And then number three, and this is one I have trouble with too, uh, memorize your weapon. There are people in the military that can take their weapon apart, clean it, put it back together very quickly, all blindfolded. blindfolded. Why? Because they memorized their weapon. You know, let me tell you how I do it. You pick a verse and you get a three by five card and you write it down a three by five card and you put that in your pocket, you put that in your wallet and you carry it with you. And every spare moment you get, you take out that three by five card and you read that verse and you do that until you know the verse by heart. And when you know the verse by heart, however long it takes, you add another three by five card. We have an enemy that knows his Bible frontwards and backwards. 
If we have any chance of helping out, of, of defeating the enemy, we've got to know our Bible. The devil didn't come to Jesus and Jesus say, hold on a second, devil, let me, let me text my pastor. Let me get out Google and, and see what this says. Let me get out the concordance and find the verse. He knew the verse. I am not going to stand up here and tell you I'm perfect. Okay? I can't do that a lot of times. But we need to. We need to get better about that. Let me tell you something. We have an enemy today. The enemy wants to destroy us. The enemy wants to defeat us. And the only defense we have against that enemy is that book right there. That's the only defense we have. Maybe today we need to come to God and ask him to help us get closer to our Bible. Maybe today we need to re recommit ourselves to this book. Maybe we hadn't read it in a while. Or maybe we should start reading it again. You don't have to take up a lot of your time. Just a couple verses here and there. And then add to it. Maybe we hadn't studied the Bible in a long time. And maybe the only verse we know by heart is John 3, 16. Maybe we need to recommit ourselves to the Bible. Hey, you know what? If you want to defeat your enemy, you have to keep your weapon close. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We're going to have an invitation today. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't give you today some super spiritual truth that you've never heard before. These are things that you came in here knowing. I did not give you new information today for the most part. But I will say today that all of us, myself included, we need to recommit ourselves to the Word of God. Because there is an enemy out there. Enemy is slick. And he's a professional. And he knows what he's doing. And the only chance we have defeating this enemy is that book you have in your lap. So maybe today we need to come to God and recommit ourselves to his word. We're going to have an invitation in just a second. When that music begins to play, you do whatever the Lord has laid on your heart.